Welcome everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible and the book of Exodus. We are in chapter two where we're going to discover some really interesting things about the founder of the Israelite faith or the Jewish religion and water. Yeah, actually has something to do with his name. We're also going to discover some very interesting things that kind of upset the expectation of the original readers as they look at their own worldview in light of what God is doing to bring a new nation into the world. The Bible Bible's about to get very real. We might get a little bit colorful, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. Okay, Exodus chapter 2. Where did we leave off? Pharaoh, the god king of Egypt, issued a decree to all the Egyptians, hey, we're going to have regular walkthroughs in the Israelite camp, and anytime you see a baby boy, just chuck him in the Nile, Okay. Well, this is horrific to the Hebrew women, the mothers, right? And so they're trying to protect their babies. And one woman actually manages to. But when we meet this woman and her husband, we actually don't know their names. The Bible doesn't say that this was some royal family or someone really even important. It actually just says some random guy from the tribe of Levi and some random chick from the tribe of Levi hooked up, got married, had a baby, and bing, bang, bada, boom, right? Okay, we don't know who they are. They just have this random child. And this mother is trying to hide her baby. And she manages to do so for three months. Every time, you know, the Egyptian uh, cavalry comes through and, and does their survey, their sweep through the land, um, she manages to hide the baby for three months. Well, I don't know if she's hiding him under the floorboards and now he's like crying and getting loud and she can't hide him anymore, whatever the case is. The, the weekly hunt is about to be underway. So what she does is she gets a basket, covers it with like pitch or tar, the kind of the, the, like the goop that you would find in like asphalt. Okay. And she covers this basket in this tar like substance to make it waterproof. And then she puts this baby in the basket and then puts the lid on and puts this basket in the river I, I actually in my mind, like I'm thinking that she would probably like go back and get the baby. But if the baby's crying in the basket while all these other babies are being thrown into the river, maybe, you know, this other noise will mask the baby crying in the basket. Well, something happens to the basket and it gets swept up in the current because it says that she placed it among the reeds, but the basket gets taken out from the reeds into the river, into the current. The basket, which is also the same word used for Noah's Ark, right? This like built um, floating device used for salvation, saving, uh, this basket gets carried down the Nile a little ways. And this baby's sister, Miriam, is kind of following at a distance, watching, waiting to see what's going to happen to this basket. Well, the basket finds its way into like this bathing area where Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh the God King, his daughter is kind of, you know, probably got her swimsuit on and she's just hanging out in the pool area with her girlfriends. Well, she notices this basket that has floated up to it and the, the, the bathing area. And she says to one of her girlfriends, Oh, go get that. What is that? And they bring it over and, and they take the lid off. And sure enough, it's one of those Hebrew babies, those Israelite babies that your dad said, we need to kill all of these babies. And Pharaoh's daughter says, 
hold hold your horses hold up a second i think i want to adopt this one he's so cute and this is a really interesting connection with this baby who he doesn't have a name yet but this baby has from the beginning a very uncanny connection with water yeah and so we're gonna have to put a pin in that because we're gonna come back to it over and over and over but there's this some sort of connection with this baby and water but i want to draw our attention to something right off the bat here in chapter one the hebrews excuse me in chapter one the heroes of chapter one were the midwives in this chapter the heroes are the mothers and one mother in particular who manages to save her child and pharaoh's daughter and who we'll see here in a second this baby's sister the bible does some very interesting things which we'll draw attention to as we go throughout this book of exodus because there's a lot of it that is going to actually rub the original readers the wrong way and probably offend them in some ways and, and one that might offend us today to look at these first two chapters of Exodus to discover that the heroes of these first two chapters are women and not just Hebrew women, an Egyptian woman. And there's something about the Bible that deliberately goes out of its way to draw attention to the fact that, hey, we're not trying to edify or uh, glorify or make somebody look super, super spiritual. We're just trying to convey the reality that God uses anyone and everyone for his purposes to accomplish incredible things. And yes, he has a design for the family, but he can use whoever he wants. He does use whoever he wants. And here he's using women in an incredible way, which we're going to discover, to preserve an entire nation if they aren't acting out in defiance of Pharaoh God King, all of these women, the midwives, the mother, and Pharaoh's own daughter, we don't actually get the Israelite nation later on. And this is really interesting because it's Pharaoh's daughter, right? I mean, he's the one who made the edict throw the babies in the Nile. What does this look like to all her girlfriends who are surely going to, you know, post it on Twitter and on Insta like the instant they get a chance? Um, look, Pharaoh's daughter is raising a Hebrew son as her own. Everyone else had to throw their babies into the river, but we saved one. Like, what does that do to undermine Pharaoh's like intention and his purpose and his commands, right? I can't help but feel like there's some sort of underhanded like tension that has to grow from this. Anyway, so Miriam is standing off. Remember the baby's sister. She's standing off in the distance and Pharaoh's daughter is cradling, you know, this baby Gucci goo. And she sees this little Hebrew girl standing among the reeds. Hey, you come here. I want to adopt this baby boy as my own. Um, why don't you go find a Hebrew woman who can produce some milk and feed this baby nurture this baby until it can be weaned off of breast milk and then uh, bring this boy back to me and I'm going to adopt him and raise him as my own. So what does his sister do but go and actually get their mother? I just love that. That's so brilliant, right? Like, oh, sure, I'll go randomly find someone. It just so happens to be this baby's mother. Anyway, so Miriam goes get goes and gets their mother and their mother gets to raise 
this boy. Well, at least nurture it until it's old enough to be weaned off of breast milk. And I don't know how long that is. Um, you know, until he can eat the Gerber baby food, right? So this baby gets uh, weaned from the mother and brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. And, you know, I just imagine like, you know, like Pharaoh's like standing in the corner, like, you know, but, but I mean, I don't know, but I've heard the stories, right? Like fathers are usually wrapped around their daughter's finger. And of course he wants her to be happy. So, all right, go for it. So she adopts this baby and she names the baby Moses or Moshe is like the Hebrew pronunciation. I think everyone say Moshe. Yes. And it comes from the word Masha, which means to draw out of. And the Bible says she named him Moses because she drew him out of water. Water is in the ancient world seen as this very, very chaotic element. And so Moses gets his identity, his name, because he was drawn out of chaos. And what we're going to discover is that not that Moses has supernatural powers on his own. God uses Moses in this way, but Moses is going to behave in a way where he has control over water. I'm not going to give any spoilers because we'll get there eventually, but there are soup. There's a ton of instances where Moses demonstrates control over water, which in essence is kind of this idea that Moses has control over chaos. Now we read the story. We know, excuse me, we read the story. We know that Moses himself doesn't have power, but God has given it to him or uses him to accomplish these things. But the imagery here in Exodus is that Moses was taken out of chaos and has control over chaos. And right off the bat, we see this is actually what Pharaoh, God King, is trying to do, take control over the chaos of Israel and these slaves who are getting out of control. And that is a very, like, interesting dynamic and some tension is is building there right off the bat. Okay, so Moses becomes Pharaoh's grandson, Pharaoh's daughter's son, and he's raised in the palace. He's raised as royalty, but there's something about the way that he's raised that he knows he has like a bloodline connection with the Hebrew slaves. Now, we're going to press into some things here at Dumb Christian. We're going to unpack this story, and I I like to use Jewish tradition. I like to use commentaries and things, but my priority is to try as hard as I can to use the Bible to help understand what the Bible is saying. And I highly recommend if you haven't uh, read Exodus yet, go read it for yourself. I got a link in the description below for my favorite types of Bibles. If you're interested, get your own. It's always a great thing to read it for yourself. But Somehow he knows he's connected with the Hebrew tradition, with the Hebrew, the Israelite people. I I don't think he went to Hebrew school, right, and learned the Israelite traditions from the slaves. He he was raised in the palace. So he, I, I don't think he actually knows about Yahweh 
the God of his ancestors. Because the Egyptians find the Israelites an abomination, and they're not going to elevate, glory, glorify, or educate based on Israelite um, education. So we're going to discover, I think, that Moses most likely finds out about Yahweh God somewhere else, and it's a very controversial source, but I hope you can walk with me through it and we'll kind of get there. But in the meantime, Moses knows he is connected with these Israelite slaves, and so he finds himself wandering the streets, wandering among the slaves, you know, hanging out with the slave drivers, the Egyptian slave drivers. And he starts to wonder, man, there's an awful lot of these Israelites. Why aren't they rising up in rebellion? They could probably overthrow their Egyptian overlords. The Egyptians are living in such sweet luxury. They could probably just, if they just corralled together and rallied together a little bit, even just with their pitchforks, they could probably take over the government or at least liberate themselves. And he's kind of like getting frustrated and he can't wrap his head around this. And there's this one instance where he's out and about and he sees these Egyptian slave drivers whipping and beating some of these Israelites. And there's something inside of Moses that just snaps and says, hey, cut that shit out. And he kills the Egyptian slave driver thinking actually later in the new Testament, in the book of acts, there's a guy named Stephen and he's recounting this. And he says, this is in the Bible that Moses was actually trying to rally to this idea of liberation and victory. All the Israelite slaves, come on guys. We can, if we just band together, we can, we can kill them all. We can wipe them out and get our freedom. But nothing comes of it. He kills this Egyptian slave driver and the Israelites kind of look at him and then just go back to work and just kind of ignore what just happened. And Moses is like, what the hell? Well, I got to get rid of the body. So he buries the Egyptian that he had killed. Anyway, the next day, he's kind of like trying to process this. Like, why why did they just go back to work? Do they prefer subjugation and slavery, which is a characteristic and a trait that's going to come out of the Israelite people? We just would much rather be controlled. And they, why, why are they just going back? I know if I can just give a rousing, unifying speech, maybe I can get everyone on the same page and, and then we can then we can unify and rise up, throw off the chains of the Egyptian bourgeoisie, right? F liberate yourselves. And so he, he enters a get back into the, the Israelite slaves while they're doing work. And then two of them, he finds, he comes across two of them that are fighting. And it's pretty clear to him which one is in the wrong, and he kind of pulls him aside and says, hey, knock it off, buddy. Let's just get along. I have an idea. If we can get along, if we can unionize, we can really stick it to the our Egyptian overlords. Well, your Egyptian overlords. I'm royalty. And this Hebrew says, who the hell are you? What what right do you think you have to tell me what to do? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian slave driver yesterday? And Moses is like gobsmacked and cannot wrap his head around. What is happening? 
Do these people not want to be free? And, and let alone, they're not even like celebrating the fact that I killed one of their slave drivers. They're actually spreading rumors about and talking about it as though I should be in trouble. You killed that slave driver. Well, sure enough, as the rumor mill churns, it gets to Pharaoh that Moses killed an Egyptian slave driver and he's trying to unionize the Israelite slaves. This puts Pharaoh, his grandfather, on tilt and he says, off with his head. And so he sends the guards in to chase down and capture Moses, but Moses escapes. He just, he flees. He runs away from royalty. He becomes a desert wanderer. And he's wandering through the desert and he finds himself at a watering hole, a well, a well, a water well. There we go. And that again, connection, there's something very significant that happens here at the watering well. And um, as he's there at the well, three sis- or seven sisters who are shepherdesses, um, just, you know, the female version of shepherd, uh, bring their flocks to the watering well. And it's that time of day to water their sheep. But wouldn't you know, there's also this rival shepherd gang who show up at the watering well. Hey, we get to water our flocks first. You get out of here. And they try to rough up the sisters. But Moses steps in and says, oh, nay, nay, I'm going to save the day. And and he, he, he busts out his Egyptian martial arts that he had been studying, you know, in the royal palace for, for years And he actually scares away this shepherd gang who is trying to, you know, mess with these seven sisters. Moses steps in and saves them at the watering well. Now, he hasn't he doesn't know who she is just yet, but here he has met his future wife, Zipporah. Uh, who he doesn't marry till a little bit later, but this is where they first meet. And there's this really interesting connection because if we go back to um, uh, Isaac, his wife was found at the watering well. If you remember um, Eliezer, Abraham sent Eliezer to go find a wife for Isaac and he found her at a watering well. When Jacob went to go find a wife, he found her at the watering well. And here again, Moses meets his wife at the watering well. In the Jewish tradition, there is something about the watering well. Maybe it was like the original Tinder, right? You just kind of walk around the well, swiping right until you find the one that you want. But there's something about the watering well, this place of life-giving water, where finding a mate has spiritual significance. And it's this really cool picture that we see throughout those families that God uses to bring about a nation that will birth one day the Messiah. Anyway, so Moses saves the seven sisters and they bring him back to their father, Ruel, Reuel, or something like this. And his name means friend of God. Now, this is where things start to get really tricky and and a bit divisive. But again, I'm just trying to use the Bible to understand the Bible. It says that Reuel is the priest of Midian. He's like the top dog who leads the religious ceremonies and teaches the people about religious things in the land of Midian. Midian 
was one of Abraham's children. Okay, so real quick recap. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. When Sarah died, Abraham married a woman named Keturah, and they had several children, one of them being a son named Midian. Midian goes off to a particular area of the land and establishes for himself a community of people And he had been raised and trained and taught about Yahweh God, the God who used Abraham, who was using Abraham to bring about a society vastly different, radically different, wholly, wholly different to the rest of the world. And and that God was going to bless the whole world through Abraham's offspring. Now, the specific promise would be fulfilled through Isaac, but all of Abraham's children would have been equipped and taught about Yahweh God. Midian is no exception. And so the way that we understand are going to hear a dumb Christian is that Reuel, probably a limited education on on who Yahweh God is, but he is coming from a position of where his father's right traditions and stuff were handed down, handed down, probably filter, maybe many things lost, but as best as they could, they're basing their faith, their religious system off of the one that Midian brought with him as he established, as he established a new community, the faith of his father, Abraham. Now, keep in mind, all of the people involved in Exodus here are living off of whatever accounts that they can still remember after 400 years after Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They're getting the the stories around the campfire at night. Oh, this is the God of our fathers. They have the names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, but that's about it, right? And so Midian even would be training his, he doesn't necessarily know about Isaac's offspring and Jacob and Joseph. So he's only recounting the bits of Genesis up to his father, Abraham. And and the Israelites over back in Egypt have had 400 years in slavery and, and all they can barely remember is the God of our fathers, right? And here is Moses with these sisters being brought to their father, Reuel, whose name means friend of God. He's the priest of Midian. And they make their way back home earlier than normal. Dad says, what are you guys doing home so soon? You wouldn't believe it. But this Egyptian saved us from that shepherd gang that's been giving us trouble for the past few months. An Egyptian? What the hell is an Egyptian doing out here? And on top of that, remember, he came from royalty. So unless he was stripped down to his underwear, which I guess is possible, he probably still had some makeup, some jewelry, maybe some royal clothes on. And this does not make sense. What is an Egyptian, especially a royal Egyptian, doing way out here? But they would soon discover that this wasn't just any normal Egyptian. This was actually someone of their own kin, someone who shared their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, because this guy was actually a Hebrew. Reuel says, bring him in. And he gives him a big old hug and he says, welcome, buddy. Thanks for saving my seven daughters. This sounds like one of those, like, uh, a guy shows up on a farm and, and the farmer says, you can sleep in the barn, but don't go touching my seven shepherdess daughters. 
Anyway, so Reuel says, hey, welcome. Reuel is also known as Jethro, and I think he has another name that we're going to come across, but um, that that's who he is. Same person, Reuel and Jethro. Those are going to be interchangeable as we go through the rest of the book of Exodus. He says, stay with us. Moses stays with them for a while, and um, he ends up living with Reuel, Jethro, and marrying one of the seven daughters Zipporah, and they have a child together named Gershon. Now, if you remember, Moses was given his name as a part of the story about his um, arrival, about his arrival into the royal family. It says that Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because she drew him out. His name means to be drawn out. Names are really like fundamental to help with the story. Your name at that time was relevant to the situation in which your family found itself, relevant to the story, their part in the story that's being told. Abraham, father of many nations. Isaac, laughter. Jacob, which means cheater. God changed his name to Israel, wrestles with God. Moses, drawn out. And Gershon means cast out or driven out. And so Moses is naming his child as part of the story that says, hey, you were brought into this world when I was cast out from my home. Names are really, really important. And that is also part of the reason why when you look at lineages in the Bible, they're actually valuable. If we could, if we could possibly like get in the headspace of the ancient Israelites and understand, oh, this is what that name means. That's part of the story that's being told where they were at in history. Well, while all of this is happening, um, the Pharaoh who was seeking the life of Moses, he dies. A new Pharaoh enters into power and he is just like oppressive and brutal on the Israelite slaves. Really, really bad. And the Israelite slaves, they start to cry out. They're like, God of our fathers, this has gotten too much for us to bear. Please, will you save us? And like I said, they, they, the God legacy that exists among them is very limited if if barely existing at all, because at most they would just have the story of Genesis, right? And and they're telling each other around the campfire. They don't have this like, you know, golden book of of the story that they can read from every night. They're just trying to keep their heritage alive. Remember, guys, Abraham, our forefather. His God promised him that we would be free from here one day. And that's just what they're holding on to, right? And so they're praying out there like, God of Abraham, God of Jacob and Isaac, God, the God who is unlike the Egyptian gods, please save us. And there's this interesting thing, and it says that God remembered them. And this can get a little bit confusing because it's like, wait, did God forget about them? Did he forget that he promised them? But the word remember is zakar, and it can mean to be mindful of. So God was mindful of their situation, and he was very aware. We have reached the 400-year mark. I'm about to intervene, and we're about to see God's relationship with the world 
change. In Genesis, it was he he was the God of Abraham, um, Noah, Mo, uh, Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, right? But he's about to shift his identity to the God of the nation of Israel. Instead of being a, the God of a few people, a small family, um, remember, like the whole world is dark and over overrun by these demons, these gods, these spiritual beings in rebellion against God. And God is started with this small family, this little spark that is actually becoming huge, a huge light that is going to exist in the darkness. And, and so the first is he's going to become the God of a nation. And what we're about to see in, in pretty short order is that Yahweh, the one true God, is actually going to go and contend with these gods of Egypt. Hand-to-hand combat, like slap them around in their face. And, and then at the very end of, of chapter two, it says, and God knew. Almost like God knew the shit was going to go down. It's going down for real, right? It is going to get real, real soon. If you guys find this stuff interesting, be sure, get your own Bible. Check it out for yourself. It's going to say it way better than I can say it. But there's also some other people that are way smarter than me that have some books in the description below if you're watching on YouTube where we do have exclusive content. Subscribe, like, so that that gets us through the algorithm wave, right? And ring the bell so you know when new content drops. And we'll catch you in the next one. I love you guys.